0: Welcome back to From the Lighthouse. For our very first podcast of 2021, I am joined in the studio studio by Randa Abdel-Fattah. Aranda abdel is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Department of Sociology at Macquarie University where she is researching the generational impact of the war on terror on Muslim and non-Muslim youth born into a post 9-11 world. She is a prominent Australian-Palestinian advocate and a multi-award winning book of, author of 11 books whose young adult and children's books are published in more than 16 countries. Randa was recently nominated for Sweden's Astrid Lindgren Award, the world's biggest children's literature award. Her novels have been adapted to the stage in America and Australia, and her her debut novel, Does My Head Look Big Big in This?, is currently in development as a feature film. Uh, Welcome, Randa.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Okay, so let's get started with some questions. Uh, Randa, can you tell us a little bit about writing? Does my head look big in this?
1: Yeah, so um, I actually started the first draft when I was 15. I was in high school. I was attending Australia's very first Islamic school and I was growing up at the time of the first Gulf War and so my identity was constantly in the news as a problem, Um, I very much felt the impact of um, a media and political landscape in which Muslims and Arabs in particular were problematized and made to, to feel as though they had to prove their loyalty. And on top of all of that, I had a very strong sense of my faith and I was coming into my identity as a young Muslim woman and really on a spiritual path of understanding what that meant for me. And and I started to wear the hijab of my own, you know, accord. And in fact, against the wishes of some members of my family um, because they were so worried about the impact that that climate would have. Um, And I felt very much that the only way that I could have any sort of sense of power in that kind of an environment was through my writing, because for me, it had always been the most, um, the most, uh, I guess the, the best outlet for me to express myself, but also the place where I felt most comfortable, most at peace um, and th- which gave me also the most pleasure. I just, I loved writing and I loved, I loved being able to um, wield my, my words as, as, as a way, for not only to, to try and understand what I was going through. So it was therapeutic, but also to speak back to racism. And so I wrote that first draft um, and I sent it off, I think I was in year 11, to publishers. And um, it was, it was you know, rejected by all of them, but in a very positive way. So they encouraged me to return to the manuscript um, and to work on it because it was quite didactic. But, but they all you know, universally recognised that there was no book that spoke about um, the story of a young Muslim woman growing up in the West that sort of, you know, first generation perspective in a YA setting as well. And it was um, when I started, I got married, I moved to Sydney, I started working as a lawyer that I picked up that manuscript and I thought, oh, I have to rewrite the whole thing. <laughs> so I did that. And that was in a post-9-11 context.
0: Yeah, so, so that was, uh, um, you know, so that, that's, that's a real act of discipline and commitment. Um, and, and did you find that it was sort of having a really loose, um, you know, sort of holding really loosely that uh, original manuscript and then really sort of um, starting from scratch? Or did you find that there were parts of the, you know, sort of the parts of the novel that you really could uh, integrate into, into, the, uh, into this, this, later,
1: this later version? There was nothing I could integrate. It was like the first draft was like the, the rantings of a teenager. There was a story there, but it was it was pretty badly written, um, you know. And it was very much as much as I polished it and worked on it really hard for a year. Um, it was still something that reflected, I think, my immaturity as a teenager. Um, so when I when I returned to it, the concept, the basic concept, was there, which is that this is a story about a young. Um, Australian Muslim-Palestinian girl who decides to wear hijab. Um, But I changed the plot and the setting and all of that, Um, yeah. Ah,
0: well, and and thank goodness (laughs) you did. Um, So Does My Head Look Big in this tackles really big subjects, from Islamophobia to miscarriages to female circumcision. What sort of challenges did you face in trying to get published? And was there resistance or attempts to water down content?
1: So I started looking for an agent in 2004, and um, that was the difficult part. Finding an agent to represent you means that the agent needs to believe in your book because they don't see anything unless you get published. So they need to really believe in what they're going to try and sell and market on your behalf. So that was a real challenge. And that was where I felt the pointy end of the publishing world, which sort of where people wanted to box me in so you know context is very important a lot of people you know wrongly assume that you know the best writers get published that the you know, you know that the worst writers get rejected and it's not true a lot of it is time and place and luck and um you know the the political and social context in which you are being published um and timing matters a lot and at that time in 2003 you know this is post 9-11 um, there was so much being written about us, but also very in a very orientalized way. Um, and that, that was the diet of books that people had you know to consume. And so when I did try to find an agent, I will never forget one agent asking me if there was an honor killing in the book because she felt that that would mean that the book would sell better. And you know other times there was you know another agent who who kept insisting, was this an autobiography as though, my Muslimness prevented me from being creative um, and that anything that I was writing was somehow a sociological exploration of being Muslim or, you know, like kind of like the, or an anthropology of Islam, whereas it was just one girl's experience. That was the the challenge. But once I did find an agent who believed in my work um, getting published was surprisingly something that happened quite quickly. You know, there was a keen interest in the book from, you know, the publishers from several publishers in Australia. And I think that it was the timing that it was something, you know, I acknowledge that it was something very new and original. It hadn't been done before and publishers are very quick to see that. And so um, in that sense, it was, you know, it was a dream come true for me.
0: Yeah, because I guess that is one of those, because, you know, often people do talk about the challenge of getting published is, you know, sort of the ability to, you know, sort of articulate your vision. And when you don't have... You know, sort of examples or archetypes or whatever, and you're essentially uh, sort of breaking new ground. It can be really hard. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, to, to get somebody to see that vision. Um, and so you were, you know, you, it did require a certain. It sounds as though it's, it required a certain amount of determination um, to continue in that in that initial in that initials process of finding, um, you know, finding okay. the agent.
1: Absolutely, because even with publishers, like when you're writing from the margins, you have to constantly make a commercial case. And this can be very frustrating because, you know, you're, you're still considered a niche or a minority voice. Um, and so that was what I was struggling with, the fact that I had to make a case that, you know, not, not only Muslims would pick up the book, that there would be... Um, you know, a, a market and, a, and an audience beyond, a readership beyond just the Muslim girl wearing hijab even. And so that was the main challenge for me. Um, and, and that there's a double bind to that um, as an author and, you know, as a writer who comes from um, when you're straddling different identity locations, which is on the one hand, you want to be taken seriously as a writer first, not as a Muslim writer or as an Arab writer, but at the same time you're forced to, you um, have to to point out that 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 thing that sets you apart and that's the this is the tensions that exist for people who do write outside the mainstream that you you know you take pleasure you know you take pride in the fact that you're not part of the mainstream but you're commenting on the mainstream from the margins but also ultimately it is a white it is a white industry it is it is you know white mainstream society and so you're you constantly, as well, forced into this corner of having to explain how your voice is relevant to the rest of Australia. And these are the tensions that you have to straddle as, um, as a writer.
0: Because, I mean, I have to say that's what struck me in reading Does My Head Look Big in this, was how skillfully you negotiated that because you really explicated that young adult genre in terms of that, you know, sort of pretty intrusive, sassy first person narrator in a mouth, you know, sort of full of personality, but also, you know, sort of dimensional and, you know, sort of um, idiosyncratic and quirky and, and, you know, all of the things that made her feel, you know, like a dimensional character and you, you know like cuz what i could see was the amount of skill to a- avoid that didacticism that obviously that earlier draft might have mm. had and that you know like that was for me you know sort of one of the things that really struck me was that you were able through you know sort of focalization through characterization through you know sort of excellent sort of plotting to i mean that that moment where um, you know sort of adam you know sort of kisses um, Amal, you know, sort of unexpectedly, you know, sort of against sort of her wishes, that sort of coincides with the the Bali bombing. I mean, that's just plotting, (laughs) do you know what I mean? Like that was not only is it this bad for her in terms of ending a friendship, you know, sort of the feelings she has for Adam, but then on top of this, that, you know, sort of additional, um, you know, sort of blow to, you know, sort of hitting school with that, you know, just you know, to, to be made to bear, you know, mm. as a, a young adolescent girl, um, you know, sort of the random acts of, you know, a few individuals was just, yeah. I mean, for me, that was, you know, sort of a, a really sort of definitive moment. In, well, thank
1: you. Um, yeah, like, like to avoid, can I just like to avoid that di- didactic sort of voice? Can I think if you go in? If I went into this as an activist before I before I am a writer, then I think it would have failed. And I am an activist. I mean, I wear lots of hats, but you know, I, I've been an activist and a sort of a, an advocate and, and a fighter for a long time now. But I think if I had to strip back everything that I do, even before mother, I reckon, don't tell my kids, it would be writer. It would be the creative part of me. It just it, it is what gives me the drive in life being creative um, and, and creativity is necessarily political. I mean, given who I am and what I do and where I live and, and that context is always going to have some, it is, you know, the personal is political, but because the creative was, is what drives me, then then character comes first, then then seeing Emma not as a vehicle for me making a political message, but seeing her as an individual in her own right, um, seeing her relationships with others, you know, because of the nuance and beauty of relationships, not because of the kind of points that they might make. So it was trying not to instrumentalize my characters, I think. And I think if anyone's listening to this and feels that, that, um, you know, difficulty sometimes of, of having a message you want to write about, but feeling that you can't pull back, just, go back to the basics of why you're writing. And for me, it's always comes back to that. Even when my editors sometimes, you know, in the margins will say, oh Rhonda, this isn't your character's voice, this is you. They'll pull me back and I'll realize, yeah, I actually I I got lost in that way. I got too struck into why I was the bigger picture and not focusing on the character and and having respect for the person that I'm creating and their, their sort of what what I what they got to do and say and 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 how they're going to interact in the world.
0: Yeah. Look, I mean that that was that was definitely you know sort of seamless um, throughout. Um, does my head look big in this? You know, like it was it was just yeah. And um, yeah, I, I, I could yeah I could feel the level of you know the skill level at that point. Um, and you know I am interested because obviously you know young adult children's literature, you know, it's it's it's, it's, it's a genre, it's, it's got requirements, it's got, you know, sort of, I guess, certain boundaries around it. Um, was it difficult to, to negotiate that or was it kind of, uh, you know, liberating, empowering to be able to tell that story with its, you know, sort of really, um, as I say, you know, quite, um, you know, sort of hardcore topics, you know, was it, was it difficult to negotiate that at, through, you know, sort of that lens or did it actually help um, you know, sort of with 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 sort of framing the events and the story.
1: In Australia, it was fine. The sort of issues of censorship come up more when I go to the US. So whenever a book has been published in the US, um, surprisingly, the YA market there is so much more conservative than Australia, and that's when I've had more conversations about, well, um, is this age appropriate? You know, <laughs> I can't remember specifically an example. Um, but I do remember laughing about it <laughs> because um I I do remember at several occasions thinking wow you know I wouldn't have expected the Americans to have a problem with this so that that's yeah yeah,
0: yeah. look um because it, I, I think that that is one of those markers um of of the young adult, adult genre is it is that it is really um you know sort of incredibly you know sort of embracing of a lot of you know sort of a lot of issues um. Now, you know, I th- thank you so much because I, I think that that is, you know, there, there are a lot of people who take to writing because they have a message or something that they feel is really important to them. Um, and I think that, you know, sort of that going back to basics and, and the character, um, you, you know, sort of and focalization, and, and voice, um, you know, all of those things that come together, um, are, are, you know, are super important. Um um, I'm just trying to work out whether I'd ask you this question or, or, or not because it's a little bit similar. Um, but it was... The, did I ask you... No, I think you actually covered it, where the way that you managed to um, address the media bias, um, etc. But I, I think actually we we covered that. So, um, yeah. Um, oh no, actually, I think maybe we could go a little bit more because obviously, um, in in order to create you know sort of a male's character, it's it's skills in characterization and it's it's you know sort of skills in um, you know just to sort of that adherence to craft, etc. Um, but in in order to express you know sort of those really be quite, um, you know, sort of, uh, sort of important issues of, of the way, say, media representation works and, you know, sort of that whole um, marginalised pro- uh, pro- and the white hegemony and, you know, all of those sorts of things, um, you know, do you find that your, your research, your activism, you know, all of those things, do they, you know, sort of, I guess, inform your writing and the stories and the way that you sort of decide to tell your stories?
1: Well, it's so it's such a good question because I feel like I'm a good example of somebody whose books have have evolved as my politics has evolved. So does my head look big in this? You know, like I said, it's something that the motivation and the lived experience was something that was, you know, had was forged in my teenage years as an adolescent. So and then, you know, it was written post nine eleven at a time when I was very much immersed in the world of activism um, you know as a Muslim activist and as a lawyer and it was also very much a a book that was written in the context of a a particular kind of activism at that time you know in the early 2000s which um, is the kind of activism that I would never ever involve myself in now but at that time was still very new and it was still something we were trying to understand, which was, how do we deal with this, um, you know, post 9-11 world where, you know, the securitization of the Muslim community, the, you know, explicit campaigns in which Muslims were, you know, suspected of being terrorists and, you know, um, the the focus on the Muslim community as, as a problem community was, you know, everywhere you went, whether it was the media or legislation or political speeches or community programming, and at that time there was so much um, concern that Islamophobia was caused by misinformation. There was there was this kind of um, among a lot of activists uh, this idea that we had to speak back and explain ourselves and explain what Islam is and um, you know disassociate Islam from so-called you know extremists. You know, and I say so-called because it's such fluid. Um, fluid meaning, and that that for me was the world in which does my have look big in this emerged. Um, and but now, you know, as my books have evolved, my politics has evolved, and the world has also changed. You know, the next generation aren't as apologetic, aren't willing, and thank God to have to explain themselves in order to be, um, you know, made to feel that they belong. You know, it, it it's a world now where all the explaining has been done. You know, so if you if you still think that we're a problem community, it's on you, it's not on us. And so, you know, I, I really do feel that, you know, the politics around, you know, the political context has changed and that has in, in itself informed the way that I now write and the books that I write. And so I think, you know, anybody analysing Does My little really needs to analyse it in the context of what, what the political discourse was at that time.
0: Because I think that's a that's a really powerful point and it's a really subtle one that I think, you know, sort of unless you've experienced marginalisation, unless you've experienced racism, you know, unless, unless you actually sort of occupy those zones, it's very difficult to conceptualise the degree to which you can feel um, interpolated by, you know, sort of a dominant, um, you know, sort of community that sort of wants you to write but only like this or, mm. you know, that answering back as opposed to, you know, sort of that wonderful autonomous, you know, sort of artist who, you know, sort of takes the story that they want to tell and tells it in the way that they want to tell, which, you know, I always think it's where, you know, there, there's so many stages to change
1: um, yeah, the
0: way that a society changes. Um, and, you know, like I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating to hear you talk about that evolution in terms of, you know, sort of that stage where it was, you know, sort of that writing back. Um, yeah. Catchphrase with you know sort of Ashcroft and you know post-colonial studies and things and and then you yeah. know just that point at which because it eventually it becomes pigeonholing doesn't um, you know
1: like yeah. Yeah, and I guess it's because like you know um, it was subversive then of course it's not subversive now because you know a Muslim woman ex- you know a Muslim uh, the story of a Muslim girl and her experiences is you know so much more widespread now and it's not but then it was subversive because every single book that had a Muslim character, um, was either being, you know, rescued by a white savior or escaping Islam to achieve liberation or, you know, some princess in Saudi Arabia, you know, it was always, you know, the Royal, the Royal narratives, um, or, you know, you know, I came of age at a time when not without my daughter was huge. And I, and I remember being part of campaigns and writing letters to the editors and, you know, um, you know, that was that, that very, um, you know, crass and, and sort of one dimensional, you know, stereotyping of Muslims. that. So from when I wrote, does my head look big in this, it was based on my, uh, activism at that time and my lived experiences, um, and the, the literary space, which, which meant that, you know, the simple story of a young girl and why she wears hijab and the issues that she deals with and a crush she has on a guy was subversive, <laughs> you know, um,
0: I think there's still, you know, sort of a, a real underrepresentation of, you know, really sort of because you, you sort of just instinctively think, well, if there is a problem, then you want more voices, more counter stories, as many counter stories as you can possibly imagine until, you know, you sort of get that wonderful, you know, sort of particularised idea of, mm-hmm. of, of people again, you know, like, yeah. That, Sort of instinctively feel that that's um, you know sort of would be the the natural thing to happen, um, and yet so often uh, it, it, it's not. Um, but does my head look big in this? Is being made into a film, which is really exciting. Um, can you can you tell us a little bit about that process?
1: It's it's a process that has you know like the film world, especially in Australia, breaks your heart because. It's such a white-dominated space. It's a space where the funding is so, you know, um, so small-scale and, and so closely guarded that, you know, who you know is very important. Um, and then COVID hit. So there's, I mean, I'm talking about the commercial realities here so people don't romanticise, oh, she's having a feature film made. Because at the end of the day, um, you're still working in particular industries. And I've found the film industry... There was so much enthusiasm and goodwill, but the actual um, structural structures are a completely different story. And so we had, you know, we've had lots of drafts and lots of funding from Screen Australia for drafts, and that process in itself was amazing because it is a completely different way of writing. To write a screenplay basically means you are. You know, doing open heart surgery on your novel and then being told, you know, write it in a different way, but keep the soul and heart in there. Um, I loved it though. It meant that I saw the the mechanics of story in a completely different way, um, and it it was that was incredible. But it was the the breaks have been sort of put on that now because COVID, and that that just means that it can be a lot harder. It has been a lot harder to get it off the ground, funding wise. Yeah
0: look i i had a I had a friend who had written um, a script to at Nider and and she was actually just told unless there's a male character it's not going to it's not going to get the, it's not going to get off the crown because nobody wants to watch a story where it's just about women
1: um, oh. <laughs> I,
0: I, yeah I, I mean that that is i, I yeah i oh. Sounds like a, It sounds hor- horrifying um, and sort of draconian, um, but anything that I hear from that sort of... You
1: yeah, you have to give metrics. So who is your intended audience? Who is going to buy the tickets to sit in the, the, the movies? That was the first question. But then, you know, as as we went along, I think it's been about four years now, the whole nature of going to the movies has changed, not just because of COVID either, but because of Netflix and Stan and all these things, which I, you know, are completely totally on board and consume voraciously but you know it like the, the nature of filmmaking has changed as well um and that it's an interesting space to be and I think you know it's the golden age of series um you know television rather than film I just don't have I don't have the, the brain space to go and adapt it again <laughs> to a series
0: no, 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 but it's really interesting. So I guess do, do you find that dialogue gets, um, you know, sort of I guess uh, streamlined and, and sort of is it one of those? Because, I mean, you, one of the observations that you know that is often the case is, is that, you know, dialogue works much more along a sort of a cliche or, you know, sort of efficient uses of language and, yeah. you know, sort of, I guess setting those scenes up and things like that. Was it a process where you feel as though, you know, like your, your dialogue skills, you know, all of those things have, were really put through the ringer or is is
1: it, is it like that? Oh, there were some moments when the dialogue was just, it would, you know, there would be just be flashes of, of just um, inspiration. And I would think, oh my gosh, that, that scene is going to be just perfect. And then there were some scenes when I just, we just, just could not get the dialogue right without it being too cliche because you're so compressed with your time um, and you have to also relinquish so much control. This is another another thing. You don't have the luxury of getting into someone's internal state of mind. You have to let the actor do all that and you have to trust that process that the director and the actor are going to be able to, you know, interpret the words and, and bring it to life on the screen. And so the economy of a screenplay is so different. But I, I think that ma- writing a screenplay has made me a better writer. And I think that if people struggle with writing, go to, try and write a screenplay because it gets you right down to good plotting and character and, um, you know, and pacing and all these sorts of things. And I think that when you, it's, it's almost like, you know, poetry, um, you know, the discipline of, of of not having as many words as you can get away with in a novel, I think, really made made me a better writer.
0: Yeah, that's, um, that, that's so interesting to hear because it's kind of what you, what you imagine, but, of course, it's lovely to hear. <laughs> <laughs> From somebody who's done it um now now that you have actually published a number of books because I think it's 11 um is, is that right or
1: um yeah and 11 yeah creative ones yeah
0: does does the writing process get easier and does the publishing process get easier
1: the publishing process certainly does um because I've built like wonderful rapport and I feel like they're family now my publishers and so we know each other it's, it just really does feel like family so you know that, that that's amazing but that for me the publishing process is one of my favorite parts the editing process um, the the writing process i feel gets harder because no matter what you know i don't get more confident with each book i you know you you always you're always going to well a lot of people will always have to deal with imposter syndrome but it's not even it's not even as cliché as that I I sometimes get that moment where I'm writing and I just feel self-conscious about what I'm doing. And I think, oh, you know, could this sentence could be said in, you know, a hundred different ways and how do I know which is better? And and that internal voice is always going to be the one that can drag you down um, and give you writer's block. And so it's it's a constant process of having to deal with that confidence issue um, and letting go of that and, and really just enjoying the art and the craft of it. Um, so I, I'm sorry if, if people were expecting me to say it gets easier <laughs> I'm really sorry but you know what it's it's kind of like one of those things where I, I hope this doesn't sound cheesy but you know of course it's painful in in many ways but it's a good kind of pain I don't know I just feel that 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 the harder it gets sometimes the the outcome is just so much more satisfying and I just feel that that's why I'm doing this to get better with each book and the fact that you know that every time you write a book that that when you deliver it, I guarantee that you're going to go back and think, I could have written it better. That That's a good thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, no, that, um, uh, look, it, it, it does because on one hand it sounds so lovely to have that sense that the, the publishing process has, um, you know, sort of become such a joyous experience <laughs> that it's really countered by the notion that the suffering continues. <laughs> <laughs> The, the writing um thank, thank you for, thank you for sharing that
1: so <laughs> candidly <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good kind of suffering. <laughs> I still love it I mean I still get excited about just the whole process of being creative I think it's a it's a luxury and a and it's a privilege um you know I've got four children and my two elders so my I've got a 15 year old 12 year old a seven year old and a four year old my 12 and 15 year old are. Uh, Uh, they've always been quite naturally literate and they've loved reading and, and they've loved, they've been really good at writing. And my children have taught, have probably taught me that there's nature and there's nurture and I'm kind of sliding towards nature. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's my personal experiment because they've all grown up in the exact same house, surrounded by books, surrounded by a mum who like, I, I just spend probably too much time, trying to, you know, in, expose them to literature and, and, and all that kind of stuff and I should back off. But my, my seven-year-old, it doesn't come naturally to him, you know, being creative. And that's that's when it made me realise that it is a privilege. I feel it's a privilege and a blessing that I have this um, talent and, you know, that I, that it's a raw talent that's up to me whether or not I, try, I choose to try and develop it and work on it and it can only ever get better, I hope. Um, but for me, that's what keeps me going, but you're not to take it for granted.
0: Ah, look, no, and, and I think that is in some ways. I think it's also heartening because I, I think, you know, sort of sometimes that early starting out phase, is there something wrong with me because I find it so hard or, you know, I have to, I doubt myself so much. Um, and so sort of to get that acknowledgement that perhaps it is part of the process and part of the, you know, the writer's psyche, I think is also <laughs> really yeah um so do you have any insights into the australian publishing scene
1: um not really because i've been with the same sort of publishers um what kind of insights i guess from what angle
0: yeah look i think you know as you say because you have had that relationship it it may well be that um you know sort of it was that initial sort of hard work of trying to get somebody to believe in your story and then Mm. you know the point of having the agent, things sort of fell in place. Um, you know, I think probably from the perspective of, uh, you know, sort of students who, who are, and writers who are starting out and, you know, I guess where to focus their energies in terms of, I guess, um, you know, sort of approaching agents versus publishers versus, you know, the, the, um, the, the submissions that the open
1: yeah.
0: publishing houses will have once a month you know, sort of picture novel, the pitching the novel versus writing, yeah. you, you know, like just just those sorts of general sort of things that you might have observed.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, look, when I think about when I started out and, you know, it, it was like there was no social media then, so I, I, I literally stood in um, a bookstore and, and picked up a book, which was, you know, the Australian Guide to Writing or something like that. It was like this big trim of a book and just, you know, j- j- sent book my manuscript off to the pub all the publishers in there and now it's a much more open industry um which is amazing because i i think that it means that the opportunities there are so many more opportunities um it also means that there's so many more submissions (laughs) um but you know for me if i i don't think you have anything to lose in in uh, you know entering writing competitions taking advantage of those amazing unpublished manuscript um award categories in the premieres awards um and just trying to also get published in literary journals and get your name out there um people sometimes think oh it's about your name and it's about your profile your social media profile this was a really good thread i read a couple of months ago about whether that actually makes a difference to sales and to your marketability having a social media presence Um, it in in some ways it can but in a certain kind of genre, but if you're writing, um, you, you, you know, I think it's if you could, if, if they're interested, just try and look up that I said it was on Twitter and I'm sure there's lots of articles about it anyway, about, uh, I would, I would, my, my instinct is, and even though I'm on social media, I don't use it as much as, as I want to. And I, and that's a personal decision because for me, I use it more for my activism, but for me, you know, it, it at the end of the day, the writing. I think I maybe I'm naive, but the good writing will Will go. Through, you know, will, will rise up. Um, and I think that it's important not to get weighed down by. Oh, you know, this person has a social media following. They're going to get a book deal, and then, you know, it's natural for us to think these things because it does happen. You know, the, the na- You know, the, com- the commercial. How commercial you are and how popular you are sometimes can, in certain genres, give you a leg up. Um, but for me, I would just recommend that you take advantage of as many writing competitions as you can. When it comes, you did raise the question of whether you should pitch an idea or write the novel. Personally, I would write the novel. Um, I think that with, with the time commitments of publishers, um, you know, sometimes it's just much better to have a, a, a manuscript already drafted and polished, and that's what I did. I made sure that it was in the best shape possible before I started that process.
0: Yeah. Look, no, that that is excellent, excellent advice. Um, You know, and there were a couple of students who did have uh, some questions for you. Um, uh, So, one one student um, was interested in um, the way that you chose to represent the elderly, um, both in your uh, Griffiths review uh essay and also in um, does my head look big in this um, and that was the encounter with the bus driver and the elderly woman who sort of um, you know intercedes and you know sort of basically takes the driver to task um, and the question is um what was coming to bear in your decision to include Elderly Passenger in your novel? Was it your assumed reader, a need to, you know, sort of actually capture, you know, sort of different reactions? Were there other factors? So, so I think, you, you know, sort of that idea of whether, you know, sort of what what inspired you to include sort of older characters? And I, I guess Mrs Basili as well um,
1: yeah.
0: in, your, in your novel.
1: So Mrs Vaselli and the elderly passenger were two different motivations. The elderly passenger was actually based on something that happened to me. Um, and so it was basically just ripping off a story from my own life where an elderly woman, and I was wearing my school uniform, did intervene. Um, and I was wearing hijab at the time. But also, um, uh, you know, also because it was a YA novel, um, I did want to also... Because, you know, the world of adults that Amala's encountering is the world of this demonising language by politicians and in the media. And I didn't want young my young readers um, to think that that was the world that they were going to go out into, that, that everybody was going to be like that, that there were going to be people, not white knights, because, you know, that was totally against my politics and everything, but that sometimes, you know, People standing up, um, we have a language for it now, which is that bystander um, and people, you know, intervening. But at the time I wrote about it, there was no such language. Um, it was just something part of my lived experience that there are people who do stand up, um, you know, at, at sometimes at great personal cost and, and, and stick up for others in a non-patronising way. And then there are others who don't. So for me, that was why I wanted to, to celebrate that woman who did stick up for me. But also to say and to reassure my readers that yeah, not, it's not not everybody's like that. That doesn't mean that wider society isn't accountable and doesn't it, it's definitely not not all white people that gross hashtag. <laughs> um, but for me, it was more um, that you know, to a young person, and I take that very seriously, uh, you know, I want young people not to feel that the world, especially young Muslim girls wearing hijab at that time, that they were going out to, that everybody that looked at them was going to look at them with disdain and, and, you know, disgust and racism. And Mrs Vaselli, oh, you know, like I'm so close with my grandmother and she's 93 now and she has been such a massive part of my life. And for me, I have always just been so inclined towards the storytelling of my elders and just, you know, if I could sit at her feet and listen to her all day long, and I did for years now, she's unable to now um, but that has been my world that I've grown up with and I've learned so much from her and I learned so much about what it was like to be a migrant to Australia from my grandmother's stories and so her spirit is in Mrs vaselli in many ways even though Mrs vaselli is a completely different character but also I loved the cheekiness of my grandmother as well and you know and I also I, I think maybe subconsciously I, I think that I probably now looking at it did probably play on some Greek stereotypes in the framing of Mrs. Vasily, which I didn't pick up on then. And that shows you how we you know, grow as writers as well. But also I, I did want to write a character who wasn't that typical grandmother that was just the saint and the angel um, that there was depth to her because it wasn't just Muslims who are characterized in a one dimensional way in popular culture in Australia, but, other migrant groups um you know i grew up with acropolis now and all those sort of um you know shows and and also you know the way they were subversive so for me it was my way of uh, of celebrating all of that ah
0: uh, th- thank you um and then just as as, as a sort of a, a final question from from um, student um she mentions uh ashley collageum blunt canadian australian writer i'm not sure if you've um, read her, um, who also talked um, last last year, um, where she ended up getting her master's project published, but only after she wrote a first book that was a sort of, um, you know, that, that was amusings on Australian life. Um, and whereas her master's manuscript was actually um, sort of exam- examining um, the, the, the Arminian massacre. So she had mm-hmm. this experience where she wrote a sort of where her publisher, you know, sort of was willing to publish, a, you know, like in, in quotation marks, a, a, a sort of a softer book, um, which then off the bat of that, she was able to publish, um, you know, sort of her, her, her master's um, work on um, the Armenian um, massacre Um, and so the question was um, did you face similar hurdles when trying to get your books published
1: um no but in I think that I can't say that categorically but I know that my book on Palestine where the streets had a name which was my third YA book would never I can say that I, I reckon I could you know place a a safe bet on this um would never have been published unless i had um does my head look big in this and 10 things i had about me as successes first um so a book about you know the occupation of Palestine from a young child's perspective um i don't think would have had a chance if i had shown up with this as my debut book but i had i I was able to do that after those first two novels and particularly in the u.s Um, so you know I, I do think politics has a has a lot to a lot of a lot to say and a, a big role in what gets published and when.
0: So it's it's really important to be uh, pretty savvy as a, as a writer <laughs> by yeah. by the sound of it in yeah. really understanding that market and understanding the industry. Um, as, as
1: uh, yeah, I think the timing as well. Um, you and understanding the context and and I find some writers. Um, you know, for example, I come across, you know, go to a writers festival and, and you know, an Anglo writer will inevitably come up to me later and say, well, why can't I write a book about a Muslim girl getting, you know, in an honour killing? As one person did once say to me at Parramatta, um, Sydney Writers Festival in Parramatta. And I just thought, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm beyond having to even talk about how bad that is as an idea but for me, it just showed a complete lack of awareness of where the conversation is now about not only about cultural appropriation, but also about power and privilege when it comes to um, who gets to publish and and which which stories get to be told and who who should be given space to tell their own stories. So I think that's really equally important. So be savvy, be strategic, but also understand the conversations that are happening now, the politics, the world that you're living in. Um, and the question of power and privilege, um, for me, that that's equally important. So that when you do, if you do get your manuscript knocked back, because you're not a Muslim girl, um, you know, you're not going to say, oh, you know, I was, you know, it was because they didn't like my writing. But maybe it's because it's not your space anymore to take that, to, you know, to tell those stories.
0: Because I I think sort of realising, and and I think that, you know, sort of especially coming from a university literary background, I think sometimes there is an illusion or a delusion that that literary space is neutral and it's just based on, you know, sort of skill or worth or, you know, canon and and all of those sorts of things and sort of understanding that there are real engines um, at play and that there's nothing um, sort of neutral about it. And even just, you know, sort of I, I think if you even just did a Survey of of, you know sort of publications in a year, it wouldn't take very long to see that there's an underrepresentation of a lot of groups relative to the population of of Australia and the demographics of Australia. Um, You you know, like I I just there's a sort of a you know sort of a basic misunderstanding or not enough engagement with you know sort of representation and media and all of those sorts of things.
1: Um, I I mean, absolutely, and to give you a little bit of insight into what that means on you know from the perspective of for example, like in my world, you know I've got friends who are Muslim writers, and you know there, there was a t- there was a, a time I remember we were having this conversation because four of us, I wasn't included, but four of them, sorry, had books coming out. And it was a real issue of when should we schedule publication because the white literary space is not going to be able to handle four Muslim writers at once you know, it's, they're going to either review only one of us because they won't be able to, they just won't be able to cope, <laughs> you know, with four different Muslim voices, what will they do? And this is a real, I mean, this is a really pressing issue now because there's no doubt that there are so many more voices, um, you know, so much more writing that, that's coming out from people of colour. And, of course, in a, in a white mainstream space, literary space with white gatekeepers and white reviewers mainly, you um, there are real issues around um power here and around gatekeeping and around um you know some voices rising to the top and others being suppressed and you know as someone who has had success and because i've been here for a while now and as one of the first i am very conscious of um opening space and also amplifying those voices that are coming up because otherwise bigger voices will drown out the the new and emerging voices because the industry won't cope. And that's the flip side of those who say, you know, um, there are too many coming out. And and because there is this narrative of, um, you know, reverse sort of now, it's this kind of narrative of resentment that all these people of colour are getting published and we're not anymore, because I hear that as well. And, you know, not understanding that white space is still dominating and still, um, you know, it's still... Uh, making decisions that impact on who gets published and how much space they get and attention um, and at whose expense.
0: Look, even the idea that there's this, you know, sort of quota notion is just, you
1: know, like it just yeah. is,
0: uh, it, and it should, you know, it, it, it should send chills. And, and I think, you know, sort of that, you know, sort of tenacity to, you know, sort of, and the commitment to making change happen. Um, you know is, is, is just so powerful and, and it is so reliant upon you know sort of trail raisers like yourself who've gone forth and you know, sort of, you know really done so much um, to change the Australian landscape. Um, so Randa, look I am so grateful that you shared your afternoon with us. Um, thank you look, thank you so much. Um, we are deeply 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 indebted to you so thank you. Oh.
1: Thank you and really thank for, for putting up with my ramblings at times. But um, it was really a privilege for me to talk to you. Thanks for the really insightful questions as well. Thank you so much for
0: joining us for our very first podcast Back for the Year. Uh, please do remember to like us at fromthelighthouse.org and I look forward to hearing from you all soon. Thank you. Bye.